When it comes to Bible prophecy, some Christians are convinced that almost everything that happens every single day is somewhere predicted in Scripture. But many other Christians hardly even care about prophecy. So where do you find yourself on that spectrum? Well, this week on The Land and the Book, best-selling author Amir Sarfati trains us to listen for rumblings of prophecy. Welcome back to The Land and the Book with our host, Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger, and maybe you wonder, what does Passover, you're hearing more about Passover, uh, have to do with us as believers? Well, you might think you know the answer, but have you experienced a Passover Seder? You know, this year you can. Yeah, in the lead-up to this year's Passover, our friends at Life and Messiah have a special offer just for you. To any listener who signs up at lifeinmessiah.org, they'll send you a free Messianic Passover Haggadah. This booklet will guide you through this ancient celebration to help you see the connections with Jesus, our Messiah, and the Last Supper. In addition, Life and Messiah is making their interactive Passover Seder available to you for free. With this video and the Haggadah, you can celebrate the richness of Passover this year with your family and friends. Visit lifeinmessiah.org and then click on the Moody Radio button there for more information and to sign up. Well, last week we took a break from current news events to focus on news stories from Amazing Israel. And this week we want to catch up on recent archaeological discoveries that are all making the headlines. The top story archaeologically, of course, is the recent announcement regarding excavations from the Second Temple period at the Pool of Siloam. What do we know about this particular project, Charlie? Well, the most important thing, at least from a biblical perspective, is that the pool now being excavated is the one mentioned in John 9, the pool where Jesus sent the man born blind to wash his eyes and where the man gained his sight. The pool itself was initially discovered by accident back in late 2004 during work to repair a sewer. Up till that point, Hezekiah's tunnel exited into a small Byzantine-era pool. Following the discovery, part of the first century pool was excavated, but the rest extended under private land whose owners wouldn't give permission to excavate. The Jerusalem municipality eventually gained control over the land and have now given the Israeli Antiquities Authority, the Israel National Parks Authority, and the City of David Foundation permission to excavate the remainder of the pool. Based on preliminary soundings, the pool in the time of Jesus was 225 feet wide and had steps on at least three sides leading down to the water. It's believed to have served as a giant mikvah, a giant ritual bath, for the hundreds of thousands of pilgrims who converged there before ascending a monumental street that led up to the temple. Now, the project is not without its detractors. Critics claim the decision to excavate is part of the plan to expand Jewish presence in a Palestinian neighborhood. However, this is a major archaeological find. The fact that it demonstrates the Jewish character of ancient Jerusalem is what's behind much of the criticism. But it's also a historical reality that just can't be swept under the rug. What's unclear is whether the entire pool being uncovered dates to the time of Jesus or if remains of Hezekiah's original pool will also be discovered. The excavations are now taking place, and I'm looking forward to actually seeing what's being done. I'll definitely be posting pictures of the site for our Land in the Book Facebook page, hopefully later this coming week. And we'll look forward to those, Charlie, as you travel to Israel. From the southeastern side of ancient Jerusalem to the far western side, our next story also looks at another pool, this time the Sultan's Pool. What exactly is Sultan's Pool and what's being done at that site? Yeah, Sultan's Pool is in the Hinnom Valley, just to the south of Jaffa Gate. 
the modern road that crosses the Hinnom Valley there, it actually drives over the dam built to create the pool. The pool was originally built sometime during the Second Temple period, but it was reconstructed in the 16th century during the Ottoman period, which is when it got its name, Sultan's Pool. Uh, the pool served as part of Jerusalem's water supply network. For the past 40 or more years, the area has been a concert venue. I remember watching concerts from the rooftop of the Institute of Holy Land Studies on the hill next to the pool when I was a student there back in the early 80s. Uh, well, anyway, the plan is to transform the area into a park that will visually connect with the adjacent artist colony just on the west side. Plans include renovating the ancient pool as well as constructing a nearby swimming pool. Uh, the dam and aqueduct will be preserved, but the theater area that's there today will be moved to the north and seating will be increased to 7,000. They also plan to address accessibility issues and to improve the restrooms and the lighting at the site. Uh, the only concern I have, John, is for traffic. Uh, the reports I've read don't really address the issue, but traffic in that area is a major problem. The road across this dam is only two lanes wide, one in each direction. And on the east side, three roads converge, one coming down past Jaffa Gate, one coming around from Zion Gate, and the other coming up from the Hinnom Valley. And on the other side of the dam, the road splits in two with one heading south toward Bethlehem and the other heading north toward the modern area of West Jerusalem. Uh, if they plan on making Sultan's Pool an even more popular destination, I'm not sure what they plan to do with all the traffic it's going to generate. Hopefully, those are issues that are also on the drawing board, even if they've not let us know what they are. That's Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger. This is The Land and the Book, and it's great to have Charlie traveling in Israel and bringing us these stories. Well, the Israel Antiquities Authority is embarking on a plan to deploy remote sensing technology as a standard tool for all archaeological digs in Israel. So we've got to back up just a bit, Charlie. What exactly is remote sensing, and how will it help? What can we understand in plain uh, English language? Yeah, well, remote sensing involves the use of technology to provide preliminary underground mapping of archaeological sites before excavations start. Hopefully it will let them see roads, buildings, gates, those kind of things underground. Right now, archaeologists look at aerial photos of sites and try to guess which spots might be the most advantageous for starting their dig, but that definitely involves guesswork and a good bit of luck. The Antiquities Authority is selecting three companies to demonstrate three different ground sensing technologies. Uh, the reason for implementing the technology is the growing tension in Israel between new construction and archaeology. Israel's a small country and it's rapidly expanding its cities and its roads and all its other infrastructure. But at the same time, it's a country with 5,000 years of history lying just below the surface. By one estimate, less than 10% of all archaeological sites in Israel have had any degree of exploration at all and most of them have had less than 10% of the site explored. Officials are hoping the new technology will allow them to quickly explore what's underneath the surface at sites so they can excavate in spots most likely to offer significant results. And that should also free up some of the other space so roads and buildings can be constructed in a timely manner. Now, going forward, this could very well change the way sites are selected and evaluated prior to beginning a dig. Yeah. Necessity is the mother of invention, and the necessity to balance progress with the treasures of the past is what's driving this latest innovation in technology. I'm intrigued with this next story, Charlie. An article recently appeared with the headline, Written Records of Biblical King David 
discovered by researchers. So have actual historical records from King David been uncovered? Or is this an example of clickbait on the part of some uh, crafty editor somewhere? Yeah, well, the truth is somewhere in the middle. And I got to admit, John, I was intrigued and then I was miffed when the article didn't live up to the promise of the headline. But it's still something worth sharing. Uh, the discovery referenced in the title was actually made back in 1868. And it was made 15 miles east of the Dead Sea near the Jordanian town of Divan, which is where the Moabite capital of Dibon was located. It's called the Mesha Stele, or the Moabite Stone, and today it's in the Louvre in Paris. It was broken into fragments back in the 1860s, and some pieces are missing still. But before it was damaged, a papier-mâché impression of the entire inscription was made. The Stele is a lengthy account of King Mesha of Moab going to war with Israel, and it corresponds roughly with 2 Kings 3, which describes a battle between Mesha and Kings Joram of Israel and Jehoshaphat of Judah. In a second strike against this headline, there are no written records of King David in the stela, but it does contain allusions to the Israelite God, as well as the house of David, providing evidence that the rulers in Judah were known as David's dynasty. Now, the real story in the article focused on the new digital photographs of both the restored stela and the paper squeeze using reflectance transforming imaging to create a precise three-dimensional digital rendering. By using this method, scientists were able to verify that the phrase House of David was indeed written on the stela. The letters were in the area where the stone was broken, which is why some had doubted that's what it actually said. So the significance of the story is the reality that the Moabite stone, written about 850 B.C., about 120 years after the death of King David, definitely referred to the rulers of the kingdom of Judah as being from the house of David, identifying him as the dynasty's founder. This matches the stella fragments discovered at Tel Dan in the far north of Israel, which date to about 840 B.C., 10 years later. That stella also identified the king of Judah as being from the house of David. Now, this is one more historical data point reminding us that David was the founder of the royal dynasty that ruled from Jerusalem. Of course, for those of us who believe the Bible, well, that's something we already knew. Fascinating stories, Charlie. Thank you for doing the research on all this. Interesting. Right now, I am reading Amir Sarfati's book, By Way of Deception. And uh, this guy really has a gift. He's our guest today on The Land and the Book. We're talking about rumblings of prophecy. You know, some Christians seem to be convinced that almost everything that happens every single day is somehow predicted in Scripture. Others, eh, they don't see prophecy as a big deal at all. Where do you land on all that? It's an important conversation. We'll have it next, right here on The Land and the Book. When it comes to Bible prophecy, many Christians fall into two very different groups. The first group is excited about prophecy. To the point, they are sure that most everything that happens every single day is somewhere predicted in Scripture. And then there's the other group, largely oblivious and almost unenthusiastic, rarely giving a thought to prophecy. Where do you find yourself on that spectrum? And what do you say we talk about it with a prophecy expert coming up? You're listening to The Land and the Book, and I'm John Geiger. And before we explore rumblings of prophecy, let's give a listen to this idea on sharing Christ with your Jewish neighbor or coworker. When it comes to sharing our faith, for many of us, it's not the how-to that we lack, it's the want-to. 
Beth Tavalon is with the Olive Tree Congregation. Beth, how can we find the passion and kindness we might be lacking to share Yeshua with a Jewish friend or coworker? I think having passion comes from our relationship with the Lord. And if we are lacking in our personal walk with Him, then we're not going to be passionate about the Lord. But if we're spending time in Scripture and we're spending time in prayer and we're really trying to keep our eyes focused on the Lord, then He's going to give us opportunities and we're going to be ready to share. And And the love that we have for the Messiah is going to come out and it can't be hidden under a bushel. We are passionate because of what he has done for us in our lives. So this is something we don't just crank up and and manufacture in the uh, good works division inside our soul somewhere. this, This comes, as you say, from having a real vibrant walk with Christ ourselves. Yes, and I will say, too, that it is also about being obedient. There was one time when I asked the Lord, should I share the gospel with this person? And I felt like he impressed on my heart. When would I ever say no to that question? Mm, When would I say no? Great thought. Beth Tablin with the Olive Tree Congregation joining us today with insights on the land and the book. Amir Sarfati is an Israeli author, Bible teacher, and Middle East news correspondent. He's a commentator. He's all over the web, all over YouTube, known for his Bible prophecy teachings, his insight into world events, and his fiction and nonfiction books. Uh, He's founder and president of Behold Israel. If you're not connected with them, you should be. Behold Israel. Look it up. We're uh, honored to connect with Amir in his offices in northern Israel. Welcome back to The Land and the Book, Amir. Thank you, John. It's always a pleasure to be on this program. So not long ago, you returned from a tour of the United States. How would you assess the evangelical church's interest in biblical prophecy? Well, I'm not sure you're going to like my answer, John. Be honest. Uh, but, um, although, <laughs> although I've seen a lot of wonderful people that uh, are very excited about things that are happening, I've also encountered a lot of sensationalism that is giving very bad rep to any Christian Hmm. among the prophecy community, which really is the story of my life. I'm torn between trying to get those that are not excited about prophecy to get excited and trying to get those that are overly excited to the point that they're actually exaggerating (laughs) to stay on track and not to confuse the people because they actually are damaging yes. the effort to get people to believe in it and want to get show interest in it. You know, I think a roadblock for some people is some of the imagery and, and all that goes along with it. Some Christians ask, if God really wanted us to understand Bible prophecy, why didn't he make it a bit more, you know, understandable? Your response. First of all, I believe that it is understandable with the help of the Holy Spirit. Everything in the Bible can be a little bit of a riddle when you just read it as a book and not as the Word of God. Mm. And in order to understand the Word of God, you need also the Spirit of God to guide you in all truth. This is the Word of truth. The Spirit of God is the Spirit of truth. And in order to understand the truth in the Word of truth, you need the Spirit of truth to lead you and guide you. When Bible prophecy for you is just a way to just get excited for other reasons, then I'm not sure you truly understand it. Another big plague that I see in Christian communities nowadays is the relying on YouTube more than on the Bible, relying Mm. on social media more than on the Bible. People are very illiterate when it comes to the Bible, and they trust teachers more than they trust the Bible itself. Mm. So what happened is, 
if the teacher says ABC, we don't go and check if it really says ABC in the Bible. Obviously, this teacher is very, you know, scholar, and you know, he, he knows what he's talking about, and sure. that's it. They'll, they'll start fighting for stuff said by a pastor rather than for stuff written in the Bible. Hmm. And this is where I struggle, because, you know, I think that Satan has it very easy to deceive the church when the church is not in the Word. And that's the problem. The Word yes. is the light that we need to walk by. And, and by the way, because people are not in the Word, they don't understand that God did not give us the spirit of fear, but of love and of power and of sound mind. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, Christians nowadays don't love each other. There is no power. It's weakness. They're very afraid, by the way, and there is no sound mind. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, let's not forget there's thousands of Christians that are thirsty and hungry for that part of the Bible that is often being ignored from most pulpits across the world. And uh, it's a growing community because world events are definitely telling the common Christians something is happening. They just don't understand how to connect yes, the dots. Yes, yes. And so we're here to help. We're talking with Amir Sarfati in Israel. His live updates and teachings based on God's written word sift out the truth on current events amidst global media bias against Israel. I think one of our problems, Amir, is that, you know, we evangelicals were taught to interpret the Bible literally, and then you come to passages in Daniel and Revelation, and there's a lot of imagery there, and obviously some of that isn't literal. How about a guideline or two that you have found helpful with regard to prophetic imagery? Well, it's very simple. The Bible always tells us when it's not the real thing, but it wouldn't be a symbol. The Bible always tells us that something is like something else. By the way, Wherever you go in the New or in the Old Testament, when you know it's a parable, when there is no name attached to a person. Mm. But when there is a name attached to a person, you know it's a real thing. It's not a parable. There is a person called Lazarus that was a poor guy. There was a rich man. I mean, this is not a parable because there's a name. There are certain rules here that you need to follow. Now, if the Bible says, I see A and it looks like B, it's not B. It's A. It looks like B. The Bible is very self-explanatory by way of telling you in advance that an imagery is the best way for the prophet or the writer to describe something. Hmm. That doesn't mean it is exactly it. It means that's the way that the, the writer said he could only describe what he's seeing. And it's always, always so that the writer says, I see something and it looks like I see something, and it reminds me of. I see something, and it appears as if it is. You know, and and both in the Hebrew and the Greek, it's very, very clear. So we have to always pay attention to these things. Yeah. Take us to a relatively recent development in the Middle East that is clearly a fulfillment of Bible prophecy, maybe something we we haven't, haven't properly processed as such. Well, uh, you know, I always look at the alliance that has been formed between Russia and Iran and Turkey right now as a clear indication that the prophecy of Ezekiel 38 is around the corner. I mean, if you look back in history, never before in history, Russia, Turkey, and Iran were in favor of one another. Never before, Russia was for any Muslim country. Never before, Turkey as Sunni liked Iran as Shiite. Never before, Iran was willing 
to collaborate with the other two. But suddenly we see a convergence of interests. Uh, you see Turkey with a triple digit inflation. You see Iran with its back to the wall and trying to do what Iran can do in order to survive. And we see Russia in a great need for some recognition in light of what's going on in Ukraine. This is the unholy alliance that has been born, and it's right there. And Israel, by the way, as of yesterday, Israel has been put on notice by the Russians. If you are going to send the Ukrainians something, we are going to have to deal with you. And so all of these things are very important. I mean, as we look at that, I think that also when we when we see the world in a general, not just the Middle East, we see where the world goes, where the lie becomes the truth, when, when the light of the gospel is being rejected and they choose the other side, as Second Thessalonians chapter 2 says, then we see what's going on. The world stage is ready for the rise of the Antichrist. Europe is crumbling, which I believe it's where that deliverer is going to rise from. Hmm. We see that the Middle East, you know, Israel is finding trillions of cubic feet of natural gas that is getting the attention, not just of the whole world, but of the Russians in particular. And as, as you know, the, the war, the next war that the Bible predicts is going to happen will not be just political or religious. It will be economic. Yes. It will be about plundering, taking spoils of war. So everything that is happening around us right now is indicating of fulfillment of Bible prophecy, whether it's in the local, regional, or the global uh, scale. This is The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger, and you've joined us for a conversation with Amir Sarfati that we're calling Rumblings of Prophecy. So what's a good first step for somebody listening right now? They're saying, hmm, I, I, I really should pay more attention to prophecy. Where do they start? Do you, I mean, you just go to the book of Daniel? Do you start with Revelation? What do you recommend? First of all, I, for me, I always prefer that, you know, starts with understanding who God is by reading the whole Bible, not, not just a certain book. Because mm-hmm. the problem is you, you study one book, and you don't understand the character of God, and you, you don't understand how things are. For example, the idea that the books of the prophets are not necessarily in a chronological order. This is a very important idea. If people don't understand that, they fall into the trap of misinterpreting Bible prophecy. If Isaiah in chapter 2 can describe the millennial kingdom, and in chapter 53 can describe the death of Jesus 2,000 years ago, then you know that reading prophecy is not necessarily in a chronological order, but it's how the Spirit of God revealed itself and revealed the future to the prophets in those days. Now, if you understand that Genesis was not written in, in a chronological order as well, as you see that the creation was mentioned, or at least with Adam and Eve, it mentioned a couple times there. And if you understand that the book of the prophet, then it's easier for you to understand why the book of Revelation, for example, is not in, in chronological order necessarily. So once you understand the concept, it's easier for you to get a greater understanding of the plan of God. If you only choose one book, you'll never get it. Mm-hmm. But if you see a pattern, then you, you get yeah. it. Uh, what about the differing numbers of opinions and interpretations on some of these passages? I mean, there are some Bible teachers and preachers that uh, they get so spun up about their position on prophetic issues, it's a real turnoff for some. You're right. Uh, first of all, I always tell people, make sure 
that you distinguish between matters of salvation and matters that are not of salvation. Matters of salvation, you must be on top of things, and there is no other way to interpret things, because that's salvation, that's death and life. But for me, for example, I, for example, myself, I'm a pre-tribulation raptured believer, but I'm not going to waste all my time and all my energy to fight with mid-trib or post-trib people, mm-hmm. where I know that my time is limited to actually give the gospel to the non-believers. Right. Okay, because none of that is a, a matter of salvation. So yes, I can give you all the arguments why I believe of a pre-tribulation rapture. But if you are still stubborn to believe in a mid-trib or in a post-trib, fine with me. This is not, for me, a matter of salvation. You know, we don't have much time left, John, and the Bible says we need to redeem our time because the days are evil. And so, yes, we need to teach the Bible, and yes, we need to always uh, back whatever we say with scriptures, not with one, not with two, show a pattern, show the nature of God, show the character of God, but at the same time, most of our time and effort should be focusing on reaching out to the lost. We must find creative ways. We must always find a way. Now, by the way, prophecy is a wonderful anchor mm-hmm. to get people's attention, not believers. I mean, you talk about current events, and you say, funny that you, know, you said that, because the Bible, let me tell you, predicted that long time ago in details. And in, he'll listen to you if you're smart enough to connect the dots. But if you come to him with some conspiracy theories, he'll never listen to what you have to say about Jesus. Never. Well, it has been a a great visit, as always, and uh, a link to his website, Behold Israel, and much more at ours, thelandandthebook.org. Thanks for the visit, Amir. Thank you, John. God bless. And our host and friend, Charlie Dyer, returns with a fresh look at your Bible questions coming up next here on The Land and the Book. Welcome back to The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. I'm John Geiger with our host, Charlie Dyer. We're about to do something unnerving if you're not really, really a good student of the Bible. That is, answer questions from the Bible. The tough ones, we don't sidestep any of them. That's why I'm glad it's Charlie doing the answers. Charlie, how come I never see sweat on your forehead? You know, there's just something about the teacher in me that loves questions. I've loved asking questions, and I love... uh, answering questions. They force you to dig into God's Word. Uh, That's the best way to learn, is to try and answer some of these uh, hardballs that are thrown at us. Yeah. Well, speaking of questions, maybe you wonder, what does Passover have to do with us as believers in Jesus? You might think you know the answer, but have you experienced a Passover Seder? You know, this year, you can? Yeah, in the lead-up to this year's Passover, our friends at Life and Messiah have a special offer just for you. To any listener who signs up at lifeinmessiah.org, they'll send you a free Messianic Passover Haggadah. This booklet will guide you through this ancient celebration to help you see the connections with Jesus our Messiah and the Last Supper. In addition, Life and Messiah is making their interactive Passover Seder available to you for free. With this video and the Haggadah, you can celebrate the richness of Passover this year with your family and friends. Uh, Visit lifeinmessiah.org and then click on the Moody Radio button there for more information and to sign up. 
All right, let's start with our first question of the day. This one from George. He says, with the death of former Pope Benedict XVI recently, I'd like to know the origin of the papacy. Do you believe Jesus commissioned Peter to be the first pope? Yeah, the history of the papacy, it's rather long and involved. In fact, I really can't do it justice even in uh, this program with a short answer. Catholic tradition says Peter became the bishop of the church in Rome and was recognized as the first among equal of the apostles. Uh, The tradition also says this position as first among equals was passed down from Peter to his successors who presided over the church in Rome. Uh, Jesus did tell Peter he would give him the keys to the kingdom of heaven in Matthew 16, but I believe that's referring to Peter's role in opening up the gospel message of the new covenant and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, first to the Jews on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, then to the Samaritans in Acts 8, and then to the Gentiles in Acts 10. Peter was the one, in a sense, who opened the keys of the kingdom to those groups. Now, if you'd like more detailed explanation of the papacy, here's what I'd recommend. Philip Schaff, that's S-C-H-A-F-F, Philip Schaff wrote History of the Christian Church. And the good news is it's available online in an easily accessible format. Uh, You can look up the different chapters there and read those that relate specifically to the early church and the development of the papacy. Philip Schaff's History of the Christian Church. Just Google that and you'll get some great information. Ashley says, I've been listening to you guys at work in Lakeville, Minnesota. How long have you been doing the podcasts? Well, you know, the program itself has been on the air since October 2010. And I'm not sure how soon afterward we began putting it online as a podcast, but I don't think it was very long afterward. So we're now into our 13th year. And uh, for those who haven't tried it, the podcast is a great way to listen to the program or to listen to it again when it fits your schedule. Just go to the www.thelandinthebook.org and click on the program details plus audio button there. Now, there's a link to this week's program there. There's also links to programs for the past year. Or if you have a smartphone, you can go to your podcast app and search for The Land in the Book. Or you can download the Moody Radio app and have access to all Moody's programs, including The Land in the Book. Yeah, that Moody Radio app is free. I, I had it day one when it came out on the Android world. And of course, it's also available for iPhone. It's free. Just search for Moody Radio at Google Play or the App Store. Ghani says, we're studying the book of Revelation. And chapter 6, verse 6 says, do not harm the oil and the wine. I heard that this refers to the rich people on earth. Is that so? Yeah, that phrase has been interpreted or actually misinterpreted in a number of different ways. Now, I don't see it referring symbolically to rich people or to the Holy Spirit or to petroleum products or a number of different perspectives people have given. Uh, That third seal there in verses 5 and 6 refers to a worldwide famine that will force most people to spend an entire day's wages just to get enough food for the day. And then the phrase, do not damage, uh, suggests the olive oil and wine will not be impacted by the famine. Now, both plants have roots that extend deeper into the soil, so they're less likely to be damaged in a drought. Now, though this could suggest uh, greater wealth or people with greater wealth could afford these other commodities, I'm not sure that's what's intended. Uh, Virtually everyone in the Middle East uses olive oil for cooking and and wine, often mixed with water, was used to help with the impurities in most water sources. You know, remember Paul's advice to Timothy in in 1 Timothy 5.23, drink a little wine for your many infirmities. So it's possible the idea here is that Basic staples are going to be scarce, but the means to prepare them will still be available. 
A second possibility, some have suggested it relates to uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10. The Samaritan poured oil and wine on the man's wound. So it's possible the oil and wine were allowed to remain because of their other beneficial properties. But in either case, I think the point is the impact of the judgment will be difficult, but it will be tempered with God's mercy in not destroying other items that are essential for life. Ghani has a follow-up here, taking us to Revelation chapter 7, verses 2 and 3. It said to the four angels not to harm the earth and the sea until the 144,000 Jews are sealed. After the 144,000 are sealed, I do not see a reference to the four angels releasing the hold on the four winds. Why is that so? Yeah, in in 7, 2, and 3, the angels hold back God's winds of judgment, but he says they're going to harm the earth, the sea, and the trees, and they're held back until after the 144,000 are sealed. Well, I then see the fulfillment of that judgment in chapter 8. Though the four angels aren't mentioned again specifically, uh, the winds of judgment they held back are unleashed as angels sound God's trumpets of judgment, and as they sound, a third of the earth is burned up, along with a third of the grass and trees, followed by a third of the sea and a third of the fresh water. Uh, The fact that the earth, the sea, and the trees are specifically mentioned there in chapter 8 suggests to me that that's the fulfillment of the judgment that was previously being held back in chapter 7. You're listening to The Land of the Book from Moody Radio. I'm John Geiger with our host, Charlie Dyer. We're on a bit of a roll here with prophetic questions. This one from Ken. He says, By the time the new Jerusalem comes down from heaven, The wicked of all ages will have been judged and thrown into the lake of fire. Revelation 21 verse 27 implies that there are wicked people still around who would enter the city if only they were allowed. Where will these wicked ones come from? Or am I misconstruing something? Well, I think the key is to realize John presents a black and white picture of the eternal state. Inside the New Jerusalem, which is the abode of the saints of all ages, he says there'll be no need for light of the sun or moon. There's no night. Nothing unclean will be in it. There's no curse. In fact, he says nothing unclean or no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it. The New Jerusalem is only for those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. In contrast, he says, the lake of fire is for the devil and his angels, as well as for those whose names are not written in the book of life. So there really are only two possible locations for humanity at the start of eternity, the new Jerusalem or the lake of fire. Now, in light of all that, I see 2127 there as an absolute promise. He's saying nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. He's not saying they're still unsaved who somehow avoided the lake of fire and Mm -hmm. are prowling around, you know, trying to sneak in. Rather, he's saying uh, that this is an ironclad promise for all eternity that the new Jerusalem will only be populated with those who are listed in the Lamb's book of life. That is, those who are redeemed. All right, from the last book of the Bible to the very first. A question from Carrie. When was Benjamin born? In Genesis 37, it talks about Joseph as if he is still potentially the youngest child. And in 37 verse 10, Jacob asks if Joseph believes that his mother and father would both be bowing to him. When you read a little further on, of course, Joseph has taken to Egypt, yet knows that Benjamin is his brother. This leaves me to wonder if the story begins much earlier, and Joseph is older when he's tossed into the cistern and ultimately sold into Egypt, or Benjamin, or if Benjamin simply hadn't come of age yet. Can you offer any insights? 
Yeah, the Genesis account is generally chronological, so I start with the specific markers. You know, in chapter 35, Rachel died giving birth to Benjamin when they were near Bethlehem. Now, that places Benjamin's birth right after the massacre at Shechem in chapter 35. And since the conflict between Joseph and his brothers begins following the death of Isaac later on in chapter 35, I believe the journey from Shechem to Bethlehem occurs before that event. So Jacob went from Shechem to Bethlehem to Hebron, which is a straight walk down the old so-called way of the patriarchs, in Israel. Uh, And Jacob sent Joseph off from the Valley of Hebron in chapter 37 in search of his brothers, which suggests the family remained around Hebron for some time. Now, we know Joseph was 17 when the conflict began with his brothers. He was 30 when he entered the service of Pharaoh in Egypt. And I suspect Benjamin was born about two to three years after Joseph, though we're never told exactly how, how much younger he was. But in light of the chronology, I think the best solution is to see Joseph, including Benjamin, as being one of the 11 stars he saw bowing down to him. Remember, he saw 11 stars bowing down, and that included Benjamin. So even though Benjamin was younger, he was still included there as, in that vision as part of the 11. Joseph isn't one of the 11, since he's the one they're bowing down to. And Genesis 43:26 uh, says that the 11 brothers did bow down to Joseph just as he had seen in that vision, and that included Benjamin. All right, boy, quite a spread of questions we've addressed today, and I'm sitting here thinking to myself, if you appreciate the land of the book, I bet your endorsement, your encouragement to a friend to listen would be huge. Why not share us with a friend is what we're really saying. If you've got uh, something out of this program and you think it might be helpful to somebody else, would you tell them about the program on the air or the podcast itself? thelandandthebook.org is our website. Don't go away. Charlie Dyer's devotional is next here on The Land and the Book. It's one of those books of the Bible you probably haven't heard a sermon from lately. I'm talking about the book of Haggai. This is The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger with our host, Charlie Dyer. And yet, Charlie, do I understand that's the book you're heading to for today's devotional? Uh, that's exactly where we're heading, John. All right. And uh, what's the thought? Just give us a little bit of an insight into what you're going to be uh, talking about. I can summarize it all in four words. Be strong and work. Love it. We're going to get to that devotional. But first, we're going to enjoy this testimony from a traveler to Israel who uh, brings us this thought, this perspective that I think we need to hear. Hi, my name's Ann Black, and I'm from North Carolina. And what meant the most to me on my trip to Israel was sitting on the southern steps into the temple and hearing John 17 read and knowing in my heart what I have known in my head for a long time, that God loves me, but finding it and realizing it in my heart that he not only prayed for the disciples, and the world, but he prayed for me. And that's what meant the most to me. Um, my name is Carl Black. Um, I'm here with my wife. We're from North Carolina. And I think for me, the uh, Israel experience here is going to intensify my Bible study a little bit more. I think uh, I'm going to be able to relate to some of the sights and things that we saw and maybe dig into uh, getting a fuller understanding of what took place in those early days. All right, thank you for that Holy Land experience. Charlie, I just have to ask, as a Bible teacher and a Bible scholar, why don't we spend more time in the book of Haggai? Why don't we hear sermons from the book? 
Well, I have to ask myself the same question and say it, it makes no sense to me, but I think the answer is people are scared of the prophets. They're scared especially of the minor prophets, and uh, it's because it forces you to ask a question, what did the Bible mean, and is the Bible to be taken literally? Uh, because if it is, then some of the things that are said are still to be fulfilled. And because people are afraid of that, uh, it keeps them uh, from studying some of the truly great parts of God's Word. Well, you have looked at the book of Haggai fearlessly and now share today's devotional. I'm looking forward to it. All right. Well, thanks. Well, and I'm going to start kind of in an oddball way. 54 years ago, the original one-hit wonder rock-pop duo, Zager and Evans, recorded their number one hit single in the year 2525. That song apocalyptically traced humanity's technological destruction at its own hands. Now, I suspect that many listening to this devotional weren't even around when that song topped the charts back in 1969, but for some reason, it's been on my mind recently. Now, I refrain from singing it as we walk across the Mount of Olives, but now that we've reached a spot where we can look down at the Temple Mount, let me tell you why that song has been coming to mind. The song title comes from the year the artists begin projecting into the future, the year 2525. Now, that date served as their starting point. But I want us to go in the opposite direction, moving back in history almost the same amount of time. Starting this week, let's go back 2,538 years to an event that happened right there on the Temple Mount just below us. We're heading back in time to March 12, 516 B.C. Now, what makes that date so special? Ezra 6.5 gives us the answer. The temple was completed on the third day of the month Adar in the sixth year of the reign of King Darius, and that date on our calendar is March 12, 516 B.C. The temple Ezra is referring to is the one built following the Babylonian exile to replace Solomon's temple, which had been destroyed 70 years earlier. Now imagine standing here that day and looking down at the new building and the crowd gathered around it. Ezra goes on to describe the scene as it unfolded. Then the people of Israel, the priests, the Levites, and the rest of the exiles celebrated the dedication of the house of God with joy, and the temple was finished just in time. The following month, the same people gathered there to celebrate Passover. But since today's journey has taken us back in time, I want to continue our journey back. You see, we're at the end of the process right now. We're watching the joy and happiness as the people celebrated the completion of the new temple. But since we've come this far... Well, let's go back in time an additional three years, five months, and 20 days to September 21st, 520 B.C. The people actually began rebuilding the temple in 537 B.C., shortly after returning from exile in Babylon. But external opposition, coupled with internal discouragement and distraction, soon brought the project to a complete halt. For 16 years, the building project set idle, while the people struggled through seasons of poor harvests and other financial setbacks. Then God raised up Haggai and Zechariah, two prophets who called on the people to get their priorities in order and resume building God's house. Haggai records the response. They came and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty their God on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. And if you're somewhat unclear on the dates of Darius's rule in Persia, that's September 21st, 520 B.C., just before the fall festivals. Now look back down at the Temple Mount. Had we been here on that day, we would have seen groups of individuals hauling away rubble, while others brought in newly cut stones to lay for a foundation. There aren't yet any buildings, 
but the site is a beehive of activity. They're off to a good start. Unfortunately, the remnant seems to be stuck in a pattern of taking two steps forward, followed by one step back. No sooner had they started building again than discouragement set in. Less than a month later, the prophet Haggai is forced to deliver another message from the Lord. Who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? Sixty-six years earlier, Solomon's temple had been destroyed. Those still alive who had actually seen Solomon's temple must have been children or very young adults at the time. Someone 15 years old back then would now be 81. And let's face it, history always looks better in the rearview mirror. We tend to forget the difficulties and imperfections and remember instead an idealized version of the past. Those who thought they remembered Solomon's temple were now complaining that this new temple seemed like nothing. Why even bother to go on? We can never rebuild something that's as nice. We don't have the financial or physical resources. The project was again in danger of falling by the wayside, its laborers dwindling, its support drying up. But God's answer through Haggai was to stop looking back and to start looking up. Be strong and work, for I am with you, was God's direct message to the ruler and to the high priest in Zechariah 2.4. God also called on the people to look forward. This is what the Lord Almighty says, In a little while I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations, and the desired of all nations will come, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. Look up and look ahead. That's wise counsel, and it kept the people working on the temple. Three years, five months, and 20 days after starting the project, the temple was finished. Exactly 2,538 years ago this week. And the glory of the rebuilt temple was indeed greater than the glory of Solomon's temple because the incarnate Son of God walked through its courtyards and taught in its precincts. So what lessons can we carry home with us after watching the celebration following the completion of the second temple here on the Temple Mount? Well, how about this? We all have a tendency to compare how things are today with how they used to be in the good old days. And doing so can get us discouraged and depressed. But instead of looking back, try instead to look up. God's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And His power and peace and protection are still available for the asking. So as Haggai told the leaders in his day, Be strong and work, for I am with you. And finally, after looking up, make sure you also look ahead. Focus on what God is doing in the world and get involved. Instead of becoming discouraged, look for ways to volunteer in your church and in other ministries. And remember that someday God will come to take you home to heaven to be with Him. And the glory of your final home in heaven will definitely be greater than anything you've ever seen here on earth. But in the meantime, be strong and work. <laughs> Love it. And there you have it, evidence that you and I really should be digging into books like Haggai. Those minor prophets certainly have plenty to communicate to us today. Thank you, Charlie. Love that advice. Stop looking back. Start looking up. Start looking forward. Look up and look ahead. Maybe you'd like to hear today's devotional again. Well, the whole program is available at our website. The podcast is easy to get to at thelandandthebook.org. Thelandandthebook.org. 
That'll do it for today. I want to say thank you for listening. I'm John Geiger for our host, Charlie Dyer. The Land and the Book is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.